John reminds us in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1 that everything that's being said by him, everything that was ever said by any of the apostles, anything that was ever uh, upheld and proclaimed by the church of Christ, all has its origin in God himself. This message has come from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not the invention or the imagination of men. It is from God. It's his truth. And God has given them a message which they are declaring. Now, I want to consider a question with you. This message that Jesus has given to his apostles, where does that message begin? What is its starting point? Where does the gospel message actually begin? Well, we know, for example, it doesn't begin with Jesus rising from the dead. Now, that's a glorious truth, but the gospel doesn't start there. There's something before that. He was buried. But of course, there's something before that. He died on the cross. Yes. But there's something before that. We saw last week how John, in the opening verses, speaks of Christ's earthly ministry, which was seen and heard and touched. But there's something before that. He was manifested to this world in a way that God had never been manifested in this world before. He came into the world and became flesh. But John reminds us there's something even before that. The opening of the whole chapter, the, hope, the opening of the whole letter, that which was from the beginning, even before the world was made. This message goes all the way back to there. Surely, then, you say, we've now gone back as far as we can go because we've gone right back to the beginning, before even the world was. Well, I suppose in terms of a timeline, we have gone back as far as we can go. But there's more. Because we can go even further in terms of truth. And the truth about God himself. You see, here in verse 5, John provides us with the starting point. Here is where the message of the gospel actually begins. The message from God which the apostles received begins with a word. It begins with truth about God himself in his person, in his being and in his nature. That's where the gospel actually begins. Light in whom there is no darkness at all. That's the start of the gospel. That there is a God in whom there is no sin. In this sinful world, as sinful men and women, 
that's where it all begins. That there is a God outside of this world who is not tainted with sin, who has never been tainted with sin, who will never be tainted with sin. So there is a God of all eternity who is not like the world in which you and I live. That's where the gospel begins. Many years ago, to go from the divine to the ridiculous, there used to be adverts on the television for Persil washing powder. And they used to have a slogan, and their adverts were based on the boast that Persil washes your whites whiter than white. And they'd often have a garment washed in Persil, placed alongside another white garment that had been washed in a rival's product. And the claim was that the one washed in Persil looked the whitest. The one washed in the rival's product looked, well, that looked a bit grey and dingy by comparison. <coughs> now, of course, that's the kind of comparison we like to think of as sinful men and women when it comes to our goodness before God. We all like to think that we're all basically good. We might be slightly different shades of good, but good nonetheless. None of us really are bad. We're all basically pretty good people. But the Bible presents us with a very different message, and it does so by providing us with a very different type of contrast. The Bible says, God is light in whom there is no darkness. You are darkness in whom there is no light. That's where the gospel message begins. With those two stark realities placed before us. Now, something that Alistair Begg once said is very, very true. And he commented that when Christians speak about sin, most people who are unsaved and outside of the church put us in the same bracket as people who still want to insist that the earth is flat and the tooth fairy really does exist. Sin? Sin? To speak to our enlightened society about sin and sinfulness as being the basic condition and overriding problem of all men and women generally brings a response of maybe disdain, incredulity, maybe they actually feel sorry for us. Why does the world react that way? It does so because the world has long decided that it wants a different beginning. The world has long decided that it wants a different starting point. If you can start from a position where there is no God, where there is no such thing as moral purity, where there is no such thing as absolute truth, then you are free to decide for yourself how you should live. You are free to decide for yourself what is or what isn't acceptable and what you may or may not do or believe. You're free to decide all of those things. 
And we can at last abandon this obsolete, puritan and rather wearisome notion of sin. Because I'm not answerable to some God thing out there somewhere. If you change the beginning. There is no light against which all other things are measured, says the world. Maybe you're thinking that this morning. Maybe that's your position. And, well, if there is a God, if, if there is a God, I'll decide for myself what God is like. Of course, to think that you can decide for yourself what God is like is probably an even more bizarre position than saying there's no God at all. I meet many people, and you will have done as well, especially if you come around knocking on the doors, you'll find people, oh, I've got my own faith, I've got my own set of beliefs, I've got my own idea as to what God is like. But it's a bizarre position to be in, you know? It's rather like saying, yes, officer, of course I know there's a highway code. Ah, now you see, that red light might mean stop to you, but that's not what it means to me. I do believe in a code, but I have my own. Well, that's not going to wash. That's a crazy position to take. But that's precisely what people try and do with God. I've got my own idea of what God is like, thank you. And of course, the fact that you can come up with your own idea of what God is like, well, that's very convenient. Because you can come up you can concoct a God which permits you to be the kind of person you want to be. You can concoct a God who permits you to do the kinds of things that you want to do and believe the kinds of things you want to believe because that's the God I believe in. But here's the thing you see, what John is saying. Here's the message of the Bible. The God you say you believe in has made himself known to us and he has revealed to us what he is really and actually like. So whether you long ago rejected outright the concept of God or whether you decided for yourself what you think God should be like, here is the message that Jesus has declared to his apostles. God has said, this is who I am. This is what I am like. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. That's where the gospel begins. It begins with God and who he is. And how that affects our relationship to him. So what I want to do this morning is three things. Let's talk a little about what this actually means, that God is light. Secondly, let's consider the Bible's claim that in you and in me there is no light, only darkness in our natural sin sinful condition. And let's conclude 
by being reminded how it is that sinful men and women and boys and girls can be brought out of darkness and into God's marvellous light. And then you'll be in a position to move on to verse 6 and the rest of the letter from next week as God wills. So, number one, what it means that God is light. Well now, you could write a vast thesis in answering this question. Let's try and make it simple. Let's begin with some scripture. First of all, from Psalm 19. Listen to these words. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Did you notice the key words? Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous. That's God. Numbers 23. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. God has no sin to repent of. Has he said? And will he not do? There's no duplicity in God. There's no guile or deceit in God. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God is a God of his word. Deuteronomy 32. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Everything God does is perfection. Everything. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth. Without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Uh, and any ma- is there any man or woman of this world springing to mind about whom you can say these things? Psalm 111. The works of his hands are verity. That means absolute truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. Unchanging. Are done in truth and uprightness. He's sent redemption to his people. He's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. This is the God of light. Final one, Jeremiah 31. The Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Now, there are many of God's attributes which all tend towards him being a God of light in whom there is no darkness. But I want to just suggest for this morning that there are three in particular that are really right up at the top there. What does it mean that God is light? Three things. His moral perfection, absolute truth, and perfect love. 
moral perfection, absolute truth, and perfect love. And we could add in all kinds of other things. The fact that God is omniscient and knows all things, that he's immutable and unchanging and so on. But right up there, moral perfection, absolute truth, perfect love. When we read God's requirements of us in the Ten Commandments, we obviously have those opening verses which deal with our relationship to God. When we think about his commandments, about our relationships with one another and our duties and responsibilities to each other, think of this. Well, yes, it starts with giving God his rightful place, but then honouring father and mother, not hating to the point that we wish a person dead, being absolutely faithful to our spouse in every vow that you made on your wedding day, not taking from others what is theirs and that is not your own, not coveting that which someone else possesses, but being content and at peace with what God has given you. We're reading about things which are based upon and which are expressions of God's own moral perfection and perfect love. He wants us to reflect himself in his being and in his nature. And it's on the basis of these things that we speak of God's holiness and his righteousness, of his majesty and of his glory, which are his in infinite measure. The world is not like that. You know that you're not like that. This light has been manifested to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John, the opening of his gospel, equates light with life. Only this eternal light can supply eternal life. God is light. In his uh, New Testament epistles, Paul is able to confidently and, yes, dogmatically assert that there are certain types of attitudes and behaviours which are contrary to the light of God. There are others which are in accord with the light of God. So, for example... Uh, you could turn to somewhere like Galatians chapter 5. And there's a number of passages like this throughout Paul's letters. And so we read at verse 19, the works of the flesh. This is the darkness. This is being completely contrary to God. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. And so the list goes on and on and on. Verse 21, he's still going, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries of the like, and so on and so on. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Completely opposite to the nature and being and person of God. But, but, the fruit of the Spirit, when the light comes in, what happens? When the light comes in, what difference does it make? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That great distinction. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't deal with things that are, are blurred and fuzzy. It deals with great distinctions. And God, and 
God reveals himself as being so distinct from the sinful world, this fallen, broken world. God is light. There is no darkness in him. We know, we can see the world is, well, can you be flooded with darkness? Yes, the world is. It's flooded with darkness. And the use of light to describe God enables us to envisage him as one who is a light which burns so brightly that we cannot see him for his brightness. He possesses his attributes in such pure and perfect and infinite measure that we cannot even begin to look at him. Not at all. Now I can look safely at a candle flame. It won't hurt my eyes. I can sit and watch the flame flickering away. But God is not described in the Bible as a little candle flame just flickering away dimly. The light of God is like the intensity of the noonday sun. You turn your eyes to look at the noonday sun. The moment your gaze is fixed upon it, you will not see it because it's blinded you. Try as you might to look upon the noonday sun. You won't actually see it because it will blind you in its intensity. And such is the brightness of God. Such is this distinction between this fallen, broken, sinful world and this God who is without sin. This God who is perfect in all of his ways and in all of his beings. That when Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he talks about the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. You see where some of the words of those hymns we've been singing have found their inspiration in the scriptures who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. This is God in his moral perfection, in his absolute truth and in his perfect love, amongst other things. That's where the gospel begins. There is a God who is like that. Now you, you are like this. This is the gospel. There is a God who is like that. You, you are like this. Number two, in you, there is no light, only darkness in your sins. The condition you were born into. All through the Old Testament, the contrast of the light of God and the darkness of the world may be found. Listen to this. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9. The wicked shall be silent in darkness. Proverbs 2. Those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. <coughs> Proverbs 4. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. They cannot see. The world is blindly stumbling in the dark, grasping for what it cannot see in the hope that there might be something there. 
And in that darkness, it's plunged itself into every conceivable expression of that which is the opposite to morality and truth and love. And God's moral perfection has been warped and twisted. And so has the truth and so has love. And it's all been horribly disfigured and abused in this sinful and broken world. And we find in the Bible... God's people confessing their great need of his light in order to overcome the darkness that they know they're in. Because sinful men and women cannot and never will find the light switch. You'll never find it. God has to do something to you and for you. Listen to these words, The the references are on the screen, but just let me read them through. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. What a great confession that is. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Why do God's Old Testament believers say these things? Because they know this great truth. Only God is light. And in my sin, I am only darkness. I need that light which is God. Where can you go to rid yourself of the darkness that you're in? To the one who is light. That's the experience and the confession of those Old Testament believers. Now many today in our supposedly enlightened world have turned their backs completely upon the Christian faith because in their darkness they have simply refused to believe that there is only one who is in himself light. Many probably do understand that if there is such a God, he would actually step in and wreck their world. And they don't want their world wrecked. They don't want their world to be changed. They rather like it in the darkness. Just as the Bible tells us in John 3:19. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light. For those of us who are Christians, that's the most remarkable truth. How on earth could a a man or a woman love the darkness that they're in more than the Lord Jesus Christ? How could they possibly choose to stay in the darkness and not step into the light? How could they possibly choose to reject Christ and remain in darkness? And yet the truth is the majority did. Because that's the nature of the sinful heart. That's the nature of the darkness that you're in. Their deeds are evil because they are darkness. And they love the darkness because that's the only place where they can do their evil deeds. And they're caught. They're trapped. They're ensnared. 
They're held captive. The Bible uses that language. They're held captive in their darkness. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has as its beginning a God of eternity who is light, in whom there is no darkness at all, who has chosen to redeem and save and ransom those who are lost and ensnared in darkness. That's the gospel. And that brings, brings us to my final point. How is it that you can be brought out of darkness and into his light? The arrival in this world of the one who is the true light fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death on them a light has shined. Now this light that has come into the world will always do one of two things. Always. Only two things. Either it exposes the evil that's done in darkness but leaves it in the darkness. Or it casts out the darkness forever and floods it with light. It does one of two things. And for those who are Christian believers, your darkness has been flooded with the light of the gospel. And our prayer is that for everyone who as yet does not believe, that your life too will be flooded with the light of the gospel of Christ. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shined. Now, when God in creation, which is what Paul is referring back to as a picture, God decided, God moved, God spoke, and there was light. The world, without form and void, didn't cry out to God, it's horrible and dark down here. Can you send some light, please? God did. God said. God created light. God comes to dark, lost, broken sinners and shines the light of his gospel in You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And of course, that walking as children of light is what John is going to take us on into in his letter. But this is the work of God, you see, to bring people himself out of their darkness and into light. That you may proclaim, says Peter, the praises of him who called you, who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. God calls us. He calls. Come out of your darkness. Come into my light. And he calls each one. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's because God has loved you with his perfect love 
and he's met you with his matchless grace and he's called you out of your darkness into the marvellous light that is him. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ requires you, first of all, to recognise that God is light. And to recognise that in him there is no darkness at all. And you need to see that when confronted with the moral perfection of God, with the absolute truth of God, your only response can be like that of Isaiah when he himself was confronted with this great reality of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. There is nothing up for me. But of course God came and touched his lips. Cleansed them. Pronounced him clean. The light of the world has come to rescue you from your darkness and sin. And to transfer you into his kingdom of light and love. This God of perfect love has loved you so much that he's provided his own son, Jesus Christ, verse 7 of 1 John 1, whose blood cleanses from all sin. If you would come out of the darkness and into the light, you must simply fall at the cross of Christ and confess and acknowledge your sin. Where the penalty for your sins was paid, and the absolute truth of God is given as a promise in verse 9 that if you confess your sins, he is faithful. He's faithful because he is light. And just because he is light. And because in him there's no darkness at all. He's faithful and he's just to cleanse you from your sin and from all unrighteousness once he's done that you will be walking in the light as he is in the light Peter the apostle uses an amazing phrase that we have become partakers of the divine nature God dwells in this unapproachable light where there is no darkness so complete is the salvation that God has given that he takes you from this dark and broken world and makes you fit to be with him in that place of light where there is no darkness. That's how full and complete the salvation that he offers in Christ is. That he takes you from there and he takes you to himself. Fit to be in his holy presence. And once he's done that, you will be walking with him in his light. And the rest of this wonderful letter is just for you. That you would walk in the light as you ought to walk. This is the gospel. And this is our God. 
we give him thanks.